Today is March 8th, which in the year 2020, in almost all of the United States of America, except for Arizona, daylight saving time begins, which means the dreaded spring ahead, where you lose an hour of sleep from 2 to 3 a.m. overnight. Now, a lot of people are anti-daylight saving time, or some people say they're anti-daylight savings time, which is ridiculous because we're not talking about a bank, we're talking about saving daylight, not savings in a bank account. Uh, but I'm here to stand in defense of this custom. Uh, I feel we living in New York that we are particularly beneficial, or we benefit particularly well from this thing uh, because we commute to work in the morning, and in the winter, the sun comes up later, obviously, and I don't want to leave my house and have it be dark and get to the office at 8 o'clock, 8.30, and have it just be getting light out. I want to have it be light during my commute. So if that means when I get home at 5 o'clock, it's dark, or leave work at 5 o'clock, it's dark, so be it. So what they came up with several years ago was in the summer when you have all this extra daylight in the morning, just shift the clocks ahead. So when you wake up at 5 o'clock, it's still light out. You don't have to be light at 4 o'clock. That's ridiculous. And then it stays light till almost 8.30, 9 o'clock in the middle of the summer. And then the winter, when it's not that bad, when it's when it, the daylight's not that long, you save it for the morning when you need it more. And, and you're, not, you're, you're out in the summer in the evenings. You're not really out doing things outside in the winter in the evenings. You're at home watching TV. So why need the daylight? I understand the obsession with this. Everyone's like, we lose an hour. Well, you get the hour back in the spring or you've paid for the hour already in this in this or in the fall you get it back in the fall so what is what is the problem with daylight saving time well because you know everything is going so well in the world and there's nothing to complain about with like life everyone's healthy and safe and you know yeah we have really strong leadership around the world people complain about these small things so yeah. i think when and everything's going so well just generally that people just find like small things to complain about so um you know I mean, that's what it is like in the United States. You know, everyone is just feeling so good about life and everything that they just like find like little, little tiny things. One hour of sleep. What's one hour of sleep? Where are you stand, Brandon? I feel like this could be a make or break moment in this podcast. Are you pro or anti daylight saving time? Uh, I, I'm, I like light in the morning. That's 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 my principle. Whatever right. gives me more light in the morning, is what I like. All right. So and then... so yeah. So I, I'd say because. Um, uh, re really what we're talking about is the winter, I feel like. Like, if we – people want the daylight the way it is in the summer the whole year. The people right. don't want the light the way it is in the winter the whole year. And so I disagree because people I seem to like light in the evening more than light in the morning. But me, I like to wake up by the sun. I like to go running when it's not dark out in the morning. Yeah. Um, and I don't like to, like, have my alarm go off at, like, 6 in the morning and it'd be pitch dark for another hour. That's that's not a good feeling. Yeah, I mean, the proposed solution to NNA saving wouldn't be to go back to standard time. It would be to just be permanently on daylight saving time, which is ridiculous. Also, do you know that the state of Arizona does not observe it except for an Indian territory and part of the state of Arizona? Uh, which I didn't does, realize that part of which, it did. Which does observe it, except within that Indian territory, there's a part that doesn't observe it. So Arizona... Speak speaking of Indian and... Indiana and daylight saving, like it, parts of Indiana still don't do daylight saving. I think it's saving, all. I think if they do all do daylight saving now. Uh, uh, Let's just double check that while we're here. Yeah. Well, uh, Valparaiso is playing right now in Arch Madness, which makes me think of Indiana because uh, it's the third or fourth, fifth, fifth best team in Indiana, and they're pretty good actually. So that, it's yeah. pretty good for the state of Indiana in basketball. Uh, yeah, I think they they used to not observe it. Now I'm reading. There's a whole Wikipedia article devoted to time in Indiana. Wikipedia article. Uh, no, I said wiki. Uh, <laughs> Yes, the, and the one line says the 
decision by the Indiana General Assembly to adopt late daylight saving to adopt, implement daylight saving time statewide beginning April 2006 remains controversial. So mm-hmm. there might be some, mm-hmm. um, there might be some that are Central Time, but they're not. They're all. It's yeah, I don't know. It's but yeah, Central Time definitely. The parts near Chicago are Central Time, right. and I think the rest of it is either maybe the whole state Central now, but or the rest of it's Eastern, and the part near Chicago is Central. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe the, the southwest I, corner I, is also yeah, central, it looks like. The southwest corner, so the part near like like Kentucky and Illinois. Yeah, Posey yeah. County, perhaps. Yeah. All right. Well, awesome. We'll talk <laughs> great to start we'll talk, to the show. Yeah, great uh, start. That's enough out of us on that. But we will return to Indiana in a basketball sense during the show proper. Bonus the rest of the way. Double bonus as well. Right, two free throws. Both teams will be on the double bonus, so we'll have two the rest of the way. Good afternoon and welcome to the Double Bonus Podcast with your hosts Brendan and Tom. We're here on a Sunday afternoon after uh, a, a really exciting week of basketball, week and a half, I guess, since we last spoke. We didn't think we would be talking. Um, today. There are reasons why that we'll get into. We thought we'd have to wait another week or so. Um, but, you know, it's off the top. Double Bonus at, um, is the name of our podcast. We're at Double Bonus Pod on Twitter, doublebonuspod.com, or email us, doublebonuspod at gmail.com. You can find us on, well, you found us. I know I got to tell you where you can find us, but. Tell your friends in case to you find can, us. Yeah. yeah. In case you found us and don't know why or don't know how to f- refind us, you can find us on Spotify, on Google Play Music, on Podbean. On Apple Podcasts, of course. How are you doing, Tom? Doing pretty good. How are you doing, Brendan? I'm okay. I, I'll be honest. I'm feeling a little bit tired today. I don't know if it's because of the extra hour <laughs> or the less hour, whatever it is. Maybe it's, it's because I didn't get back from Philly until like 11:30 because I stayed for the Penn Columbia basketball game. Um, and what then a also, close game it was. oh yeah, well, so maybe we can just start there then. This is um, I had never been to a game at the Palestra, which is one of the most famous sporting venues in the country and near the top of most historic uh, basketball venues. Uh, I never went to Palestra for a game. I had been for an orientation event um, in for grad school, but never for an actual game. But I went both Friday and Saturday night and saw uh, Penn get the last spot in the Ivy League tournament. The tournament's next weekend in Boston. They'll play Yale, who's won, and then Harvard plays Princeton, the 2-3 matchup. Harvard, of course, is hosting. And they're rotating around the eight different sites, uh, somewhat controversially at first. Anyway, we don't have to get into that now. But uh, Penn this weekend beat Cornell on Saturday, on Friday and then beat Columbia on Saturday. And I saw a history on Saturday. A.J. Broder, a senior at Penn, has had a really terrific career. Um, he last night broke the school's all-time record for points scored. And he also broke the school's all-time record for blocks. And both these records were set in the 50s. These are very old records. And he also had the first ever triple-double in Penn basketball history on the same night on his senior night. So, And they clinched the last spot in the Ivy League tournament. So big night for A.J. Broder, uh, big night for Steve Donahue, who um, has brought Penn back from some really strange errors under uh, Glenn Miller and Jerome Allen. Um and Jerome Allen, of course, is like a 12-year show cause after trying to give a, uh, sell basically a spot on the team to a non-basketball player. But doesn't make him a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but now Penn's going to the tournament. I had a lot of fun. Um, mostly tournament. with my classmates on Friday and then Lower with one friend on Saturday. And uh, yeah. Nice. Uh, yeah, Columbia, amazingly, by the way. But we don't want to let this slide. 
started the season one and zero in Ivy League play. You know they finished. They finished one and thirteen. They have two wins in the year, 2020. They're against Mount St. Vincent and Cornell at home. And looking at the Ivy League results, they weren't very close, most of them. They did have a double overtime loss to Harvard on the road. But other than that, they lost 81-58 to Princeton on Friday, 85-65 um, on Saturday, yesterday. So not a great um, year for Jim Engels and Columbia. They now are 301st uh, in, the, uh, Ivy, uh, sorry, in the country in Ken Palm. And A.J. Broder, the records he broke, of course, set when players can only play three years at the Ivy League schools or in fact mm. all schools and so mm-hmm. credit to i just want to always i always like to mention whenever certain records are broken like longevity records that you know things have changed so um the previous record i forget who's uh, what's his name ed griffin is that did i making that up something something who held the record before yeah him? um well he was there last night actually they exchanged yeah. jerseys before yeah. the game i'm looking for his name i should probably know this um he broke oh yeah here's the photo they have the ernie ernie beck not even close. I got one. I got one letter right. The first yeah. letter. Ernie Beck. Ernie yeah. Beck was there. He was. Um. Yeah, he was the one that he broke the points record. I don't know whose blocks record he broke, but uh, I, I guess Jeff Owens was the guy who had the. He was also record. there apparently. Really. And I think wow. he set the games played record too. Um. Yeah. Good for uh, credit to him and credit to Steve Donahue for telling him you need one more rebound for the triple double, or just said I need you to get another rebound, which mm-hmm. he said he never done before. So credit to. Uh, him big moment in the um, in school history for the Quakers, and now they go on to the Ivy League tournament. So, so how do you feel as a as an alum of an Ivy League school at a time where there was no Ivy tournament? I know that when they first came up with the, with a plan for the Ivy tournament, you were very skeptical. Do you have the same position now? Do you think that it should just be the fourteen games, the fourteen game tournament, as they called it, right? Yes, I think it should stay that way. I don't, I don't really. I mean, I know the games are exciting. But it really takes a lot of the pressure off a lot of the regular season games. Um, you're going to have a t- situation now where Yale is 11 and 3 in conference and has an adjusted efficiency margin of basically six points higher than the next best team in the uh, league. Um, and now they are um, going to uh, have to play their way into the tournament. So it's always unfair when one of the schools gets a home court in the in the tournament. That should be a neutral. I mean, this is just I don't know. It just doesn't sit right with me. And also. Um, it also bothers me. Columbia's never made the Ivy League tournament, but I don't really. I think it should be just the winning in. Uh, the, sorry, the um, the the winner of the regular season. I think it adds so much more drama to the tournament. It made the conference unique. Um, it allowed you a little bit more, more flexibility with the scheduling. Um, and now you uh, and now you have uh this situation where it's a kind of a crapshoot. And I always like the best team to get into the tournament. Uh, and the best way to decide that, in my opinion, is a true round robin, and the winner mm-hmm. goes in. So yeah. Yeah. Um. I tend to agree. I, you know, I think that the coaches really like the tournament because it makes the last games for many teams meaningful, whereas a lot of the times it just like kind of there's nothing to play for late in the season, um, which is more of a mentality and like American kind of playoff mentality than like, say, European soccer or even college football, where winning a game against a team is like a big deal. Even if it doesn't mean, even it doesn't add up to something across a whole season. But in the in America, it's like if it doesn't, if it doesn't lead to some future tournament or something, another opportunity, people think it's uh, it's meaningless. But credit to Mike Martin at Brown. Um, Brown finished uh, eight and six in the Ivy League. 
They tied with Penn for fourth. They won at Harvard and at Dartmouth this weekend, but their losses at home last weekend to Princeton and, of course, the big loss to Penn on Saturday meant that despite being 8-6 and six and tied with Penn, they were not going to go to the Ivy League tourney. It is Brown's first winning season in Ivy League play since 2007-2008. So that's 12 seasons. So congrats to Mike Martin. Um, he's now gone 20-12 and 12 last year, 15-12 and 12 this year with 8-6 conference record. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, growing up, going to Brown games, it's good to see Brown back and good again for the first time since, I guess, Craig Robinson was there. And prior to that, Glenn Miller, of course, had things going pretty well um, in the, I guess, when I was in college in the early 2000s. Yeah, they, they were very good. They uh, shared an Ivy League title, I believe, at one point, 11-3. Uh, and maybe oh four or five, I don't remember now. But uh, yeah, good. Yeah, they were twelve turn. and two in two thousand three, and they actually finished second. Penn was undefeated, so the both losses Brown had was were to, was to Penn. Uh, Penn, of course, Penn and Princeton historically are excellent. Um, and they were ten and four in two thousand four, and that year they finished three games back of Princeton, who went thirteen and one. So maybe they didn't split the title. Two thousand three yeah. was the year where it was like almost a perfect. Um, Situation in the top four. Princeton was 14-0. Brown was 12-2. Its only losses, I believe, were to Penn. Princeton was 10-4. Its only losses were to Brown and Penn. And then uh, Yale was 8-6. I believe its only losses were to uh, Penn, Brown, and Princeton. So that was kind of yeah, funny. That's Columbia, all correct. Yeah. What? Yeah. And Columbia was 0-14. 14, and their only losses were to everybody. <laughs> yeah. The, the only well, two, they beat two teams <laughs> that year. UTEP, I believe. I want to say UTEP and Army. I that's true. That's true. Oh, if you were doing that, I was looking. That's pretty good. Yeah. Um. The after the game last night, when of course Penn destroyed Columbia and Columbia finished one and thirteen, she's like, "Oh, that's so sad." Uh, has anyone ever gone zero and fourteen at Columbia? And I said, "Oh, my friend Tom was broadcasting, I think, when Columbia went zero and fourteen, like under Armin Hill." And uh, oh yeah, that's so we talked a little was, bit about Armin Hill. Yeah. Just the studio, just the studio shows, but yeah, we saw some uh, ugly seasons. That was my freshman year at Columbia. That was an ugly, uh, ugly situation. So yeah, UTEP and Army, good old days. So when you're doing a college basketball podcast on the first Sunday of championship week, you want to spend 15 minutes on daylight saving time and <laughs> Ivy League basketball is what you really want hey, to the do. the season so ended. That, that's that's, why, we have, that's why you're listening. Yeah, yeah. And we got some other stuff to talk about, but like we got a yeah. we got a we we got a corner of the market, and we are, <laughs> we are this is our corner. We're on daylight saving corner and Ivy League corner right now. So. Yeah, and I was there. I went to went to both games. Plaster, um used to be the site where all Big Five games were played for folks who may not know. And, of course, since almost all listeners are went to school in Philadelphia at Big Five schools, I think they probably know. But <laughs> the, the Big Five schools uh, – Philadelphia has a really great history of college basketball. Um, New York City did also, but theirs was kind of disrupted because of the gambling scandals of the, of the 40s and 50s. Uh, and a lot of schools um, downplayed college basketball. The only ones that kind of kept going really was, um, was St. John's. Which is why they're the one good school in in the in the city now. Well, relatively good, um, but Philadelphia didn't have the same kind of uh, issues, at least not that became public. And so the, the Big Five of LaSalle, St. Joe's, Penn, Villanova, and Temple, which are not all of the big all, all of the uh, Philadelphia Division One schools, Drexel is as well. But those are the five schools that are, make up the Big Five. They play each other every year. It used to be that the games were all played at the Palestra. Uh, which is the the home arena for Penn in West Philly. Um, f- when Raleigh Massimino was at Villanova, and Villanova was like a top, top team most years, he said, no, we're not going to do that. We'll play 
we'll, we'll like rotate, but we're going to play home games in the Big Five, which people were really upset about at the time. People still blame Raleigh Massimino for ruining the Big Five, but they still every year, you know, Phil Nova will play at Penn. They lost at Penn, and Penn won the uh, Big Five a couple of years ago, actually, a year that Villanova I think won the national title. I think they lost the Big Five. Let me let me make sure I have that right. Um, and they lost the Big Five because they lost on the road to um, to Penn. Let me find that year. But the Palestra is a place where, like, just one of the great historic buildings in uh, in college basketball. Um, let's see, not 2017. Villanova doesn't lose many games. Maybe I might, maybe I have the year wrong. Was it last year? Uh, yeah, I think it was last year actually, where um, Villanova lost at Penn by two. Did Penn win all of their other Big Five games though? They beat Villanova. They beat LaSalle. They beat Temple and they beat St. Joe's. Yep, uh, Penn won the Big Five last year, going four and zero, including a th- three-point home win against Villanova. It's, and all the schools are generally pretty good. I mean, not always. Right. Obviously, LaSalle and St. Joe's has been pretty bad recently, but you know, St. Joe's and Temple and Villanova and Penn, at least in each of their leagues, usually tends to be pretty good. And so it's 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 a fun thing. Yeah, it's one of the better traditions going in college basketball. You have the only scholarship mascot in the United States, the St. Joe's Hawk who mm-hmm. has to flap at least one wing the entire time from when the teams take the court to the time the game ends. He can sometimes put one arm down. You see him do the one-arm flap, mm-hmm. uh, but he gets a full ride. It's weak sauce. That would not work in the air, I don't think. I know, but they can glide in the air. No gliding. He can't glide over here. Like I think he, get, he should get an exception if he wants to put both arms out and starts running up and down the sidelines. Like That would be gliding. Yeah. Like That would be a good way to rest your arms. Because birds yeah. aren't constantly, hawks aren't constantly flapping their wings. They're like one of the great and most efficient predators in the skies. Like they're not going to spend all that energy. It's actually disrespectful to the hawk to to to, sh- to misrepresent him that way by always flapping. Animals in the wild are famous for conserving energy in any way possible. So it's a gross mischaracterization of the behaviors of the hawk. Well, in honor of this, uh, <laughs> uh, in honor of the hawk, I'm going to say that this segment is over. <laughs> Good. Okay, gone. let's move on to. <laughs> Uh, let's move on to a couple of things I want to discuss. Let's start with um, Kansas. Sure. The best team in the country by far, uh, unquestionably. Uh, Kansas uh, still hasn't lost since um, January 11th against Baylor. They also lost to Villanova, I just mentioned. They lost to Duke by two, uh, Villanova by one. They are they went 17-1 and in the Big 12, including a, a four-point season-ending win, well, very season-ending win at Texas Tech yesterday. Um, Devin Dotson, I assume, will be named Big 12 Player of the Year. And if he doesn't, it might be Yoka Azabuki. No, Yoka Azabuki. Here, here's one thing that I wanted to mention. So I emailed Ken Pomeroy uh, like last weekend, uh, as I've done in the past, um, because I had a couple questions about a couple of his pages that he had, including the comps. Like there's the player comps pages, and they've changed because they used to do comps based on class. So you would only be comped against players of your same class. So seniors to seniors, et cetera. But now they actually, uh, Ken Pomeroy does comps actually more closely to age and not to uh, grade. And the reason why I noticed is because Udoka Azabuke's number three comp this year, for his season this year, number one is Daniel Gafford, who was Arkansas center from last year. Um, number two is A.J. Hammonds, who was the big big guy for Purdue back in the early part of, the, of last decade. His number three comp was freshman year Joel Embiid. And I was really confused by this. And I'm like, why how, Why is this a season of a freshman that similar to a senior? I feel like that, that's not really like the trajectory you usually look at. But Yudoka Azabuki, this year, his age, 
20.3. He was born September 17th, 1999. He is not turning 21 until September. Joel Embiid, as a freshman at Kansas, was 19.8. So basically, was only about five months equivalent, maybe six months, younger as a freshman than what you look at as Buki as a senior. Which I'm not sure what that means, but maybe it means there's a lot more development that you don't can do. Either way, he was fantastic this year. He finished first in the Big 12 in defensive rebounding percentage, second in offensive rebounding percentage, first in block shot rate, first in two-point field goal percentage. Um, and he actually had a lot of possessions. He was a ninth in, uh, in usage. Um, yeah, t- tell me about what it's been like following Kansas uh, the last couple of weeks since we last talked and what you think they should be looking at when it comes to um, like what like do you th- are you thinking this is a now a final four or national title or bust at this point so that's a very dangerous approach to take with Kansas given their history of early exits from the tournament but yes I think uh, any Kansas fan would rightfully be disappointed with a season that does not end in Atlanta assuming that the tournament is played of course with the coronavirus out there which we can get to some other time or maybe later but uh no on the basketball court kansas should be a should be a prohibitive favorite to reach the final four uh, i think they're clearly the best team in the country as you said it's been a very stress-free uh season for the jayhawks especially uh down the stretch in the big 12 they had one tough test at uh west virginia where they came back and just kind of steamrolled uh, the mountaineers uh, all their home games, except that Baylor loss, where they were uncharacteristically poor, have been uh, pretty comfortable affairs. Uh, I guess they were down to a TCU at the half on Wednesday, but the game wasn't really uh, in doubt. They uh, swept Texas Tech. They really didn't have any hiccups against some of the lesser teams in the conference, as they've been known to do. Remember a couple of years ago, they lost at TCU. Uh, two years a ago, bad against... TCU team. Yeah, very bad TCU yeah. team. Still probably this one is, of the... this is before Jamie Dixon. Yeah, yeah this is one of the that was probably one of the worst losses of the Bill Self era. Uh, I think two years ago they got swept by Oklahoma State. Uh, they're still the only team to sweep uh, Kansas in Big 12 play under Bill Self, which is because no, they almost never lose at home. Uh, so, yeah, Kansas... Bill Self, of course, an Oklahoma State alum, and so yes, there was some uh, thought that he was throwing games to them. I don't... <laughs> some thought just in your head doesn't mean there was any thought. No, it's been... Uh, look, Devon Dotson... Anonymous sources. <laughs> yeah, Devon Dotson's been very good um, and outstanding. He's number one still in the Ken Palm Player of the Year. Uh, rating Kansas just has very good defense. They actually were passed by Virginia's uh, team. Uh, sorry, Virginia and defensive efficiency. No, so now Kansas drops to second in that. Uh, they're very good. Obviously, they're not perfect. I think that they are vulnerable to the Hackadoke uh, strategy. They're also vulnerable uh, if certain people get into foul trouble. Um, we'll see how that plays out. But looking at the uh, just looking at the you know possible opponents, they're gonna, they're going to be the number one overall seed unless. I don't actually. I think they're pretty much locked in, and even if they lose in their first Big 12 tournament game, who's passing them for the number one overall seed? Baylor isn't. They just lost three of five games, and Gonzaga probably isn't. And Dayton isn't. Dayton lost to Kansas. So, and San Diego State has two losses, and yeah, now we're into solid yeah. two territory. Um, mm-hmm. But like, you know, if Final Four bust. Like, who you know who's lurking on the two line is Kansas bogey team Villanova, who could easily who's beaten them in the regional final before in Louisville in 2016. Uh, they've beaten them in the final four two years ago in 2018 at San Antonio. Uh, so, you know, it's not going to be easy for Kansas, but I think that they should really expect uh, to get to the final four this year. I think they're really good and they're not, they don't, you know, they are, they are a really good basketball team. And, you know, they're, all the number, all the rankings that the um, NCAA uses, they're one in every single one of them. Net, Ken Palm, 
BPI, Sagarin, what are they? I think there are two other ones, but they're number yeah, it's one. KPI, yeah. there's... Um... Yeah, Jesse Newell of the yeah. Kansas City Star tweeted this um, yeah. yesterday, and they were one in all of them before they beat uh, Texas Tech on the road. Yeah, so. I think they might have even been one in all of them after they beat Baylor at Baylor, like once that happened. Um, yeah, I'm, so, I'm distracted slightly by this Arch Madness game in part because um, Valparaiso, we're, right now when we're podcasting it's it's late in the first half it's the number seven seed valparaiso against the number four seed bradley yet again the top team in in the missouri valley uni went down early um uh last year i forget who it was um i think illinois state maybe they've had some uh we're gonna jump back to the big 12 in a second but the, my point is nick physicus no not nick physicus ryan physicus is on valparaiso and he started his career at, at Providence and had a promising freshman year before getting mono, losing a lot of weight, and eventually transferring. He had a big three in their quarterfinal game. I just saw him at a three in this game. And um, and he's a senior now. And he, he's been playing a lot more, I guess, recently. He must have missed a bunch of games this year. He's still only played 17 games. Yeah, he missed the first six... He missed 16 games in the middle of the season, but he's been playing a lot recently. Anyway, he's 51% on three-pointers this year, um, Ryan Fazekas. And it looks like Valparaiso... Just another one. No, wow, that was that was Bradley. I was just looked up late. It was a three pointer, and Fazekas was on defense. And I looked up, and I was like, "Oh, you hit it!" And I'm like, "No, they're shooting the other way." Okay, I, I'm focusing on podcast. Anyway, so Big Twelve, a few things that happened in the Big Twelve. One, Baylor lost again. Um, so they've now lost three of five games. Um, they lost at West Virginia by twelve. A good win for West Virginia, who had been struggling also. West Virginia had lost six of seven until winning at Iowa State and then beating Baylor at home this week. After Baylor, you have three, four, nine and nine teams, and they're all interesting in different ways. Washington, we mentioned, they had been struggling, very good defense, poor offense, forced a lot of turnovers, very chaotic style. Um, uh, Texas had been playing really well. Looked like they were on their way to the NCAA tournament and saving maybe Shaka Smart's job. Who knows if it's really in jeopardy. They had, lost, they had won five straight games after losing four straight. They play at home against Oklahoma State. Not a bad team, but still like the eighth best team in the conference. Lost by 22. Guys, right yeah, at, come on. <laughs> what are you doing? Another 9-9 team, Oklahoma. Oklahoma earlier this week played Texas up by two. Um, right late in the game, Christian Doolittle, who's a set 80% foul shooter and maybe a first-team All-Big 12 player, misses both free throws on senior night. And then um, the Texas player, it was Matt Coleman, comes down and banks into three, and Texas wins that game. Texas wins that game, you're like, oh my, they're in, they're going to do it. And then they immediately lose by 22 at home to Oklahoma State. Oklahoma, after blowing that game at the end against TCU, against um, Texas, plays TCU and is down by 17 in the second half. And even late in the game, they were down by six with less than two minutes to go, and they ended up winning by two in regulation. Crazy week for Oklahoma. And then finally, the last 9-9 team is Texas Tech, a team that a couple weeks ago I thought was – I picked in t- as a top 16 team to win national title. And since I've done that, they have lost four straight games. They lost to Oklahoma by 14 in um, Oklahoma City, which was – I'm not sure why they're playing there, but they played in Oklahoma City. They lost to Texas at home by 10. They lost to Baylor at Baylor in overtime, forgivable, obviously, by 3. And they lost at home to Kansas, also forgivable, by 4. But nonetheless, Chris Beard's very young team um, is now lost four straight. Now looks like they're going to be somewhere 
pretty low in the bracket at the latest bracket meters, which is not really updated since yesterday. They were a 10, which means in theory, if they lose their first round conference tournament game, which is definitely possible, especially considering they're going to be playing Texas and they just lost to Texas. There's a possibility that they might not get in the yeah. tournament after being ranked two weeks. Yeah, ago. the bracketologists are saying that the Texas Texas Tech game is basically a play-in game for the tournament, which is might be true. I think Texas Tech probably has a slight edge over um, Texas if they mm-hmm. lose that game. Um, but yeah, Oklahoma was down 20 at the uh, in the first half and 18 at the half against TCU and still came back to win that game. Um, Credit to them. Uh, they're sitting on the nine line in the bracket matrix. Uh, Big 12 has definitely been crazy this year. Not as deep as it's been in recent years. And really, Baylor, after being, you know, looking like it could be a co-champions for most of the season, um, obviously when uh, they dropped that game, I think it was to, which was the one? TCU they lost to, I think, first. Um, that really opened the door for Kansas to kind of breathe easy that they weren't going to, uh, that they were definitely going to have at least a share. And then they clinched it outright. Uh this weekend when uh, yeah. Baylor lost again and Kansas won again, they saw, and they're winning by two games. But uh, I don't – I mean, Baylor's still very dangerous. Uh, the rest of those teams are dangerous. Shaka Smart really – Texas, it's just it's such a letdown for them because they've been almost, you know, like every game for them uh, has been a must-win for the tournament and also maybe for Shaka Smart's job. I know Texas doesn't seem to care that much about the basketball program there because – Shaka Smart's gotten a pretty long leash, but it seemed like, oh, you know, they're going to rally, they're going to save his job, he's going to make the tournament. He still has not won a tournament game at Texas, by the way. I don't think he's won a tournament game outside the run with VCU uh, to the Final Four in 2011. Uh, but then they had that really bad effort against Oklahoma State. And so the Big 12 tournament will be very interesting. It's the first game of the tournament uh, on Thursday, the uh, the first day of that session. It will be Texas against Texas Tech, uh, possibly with a berth in the tournament on the line. So... Uh, very interesting uh, situation. So they should get five teams in the tournament. Um, Kansas, Baylor, West Virginia, Texas Tech, or Texas, you would think, and Oklahoma. So we'll see how things change. So, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just do a, a small but not really material fact check on um, Shaka Smart's NCAA tournament record. Final four in 2011. 2012, they were 12 seed, and they beat Wichita right. State before losing to Indiana in a close game. In uh, 20. 13 the following year they were a five seed and beat Akron before losing by 25 to Michigan Um, most famously to me because I got knocked out of my survivor pool they were a five seed in the NCAA tournament in 2014 played Stephen F. Austin and one of the least likely losses in NCAA tournament history they were up four in the final seconds, and fouled a three-point shooter in Stephen F. Austin. The shooter made the three-pointer and made the free throw to tie it, and then Stephen F. Austin won in overtime, and so I was knocked out of the survival pool. That's a, on that's a bad the beat. Ridiculous. Yeah. That's, that's a, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, so Shaka Smart 7-7 seven and seven in the uh, NCAA tournament. Seven of those wins uh, came with VCU. Five in that miracle run in 2011. And then, also beat Kansas, by the way. And then, of course, his... Um, the the Morris the Morai the Morai, twins, right? yes yes that was 2011 yeah it was like not a that was in the Meadowlands uh, right no it was not the uh, first of all that was the games the re, you were thinking of the region there was a regional at Newark that year but it was not Kansas that played oh. there the Kansas played somewhere else that was the uh, who else was in the final four that year that was the Kentucky was that the Kentucky that was the Kentucky Carolina regional final or was that a semi regional semifinal I don't remember now so VCU made it and lost to Con- Butler. No. Yes. Right. Let's just take a look. Let's stop guessing. Yeah. Uh, 
2011 NCAA tournament. Uh, and then UConn beat uh, beat Michigan State, maybe. No, UConn beat Kentucky. UConn beat Kentucky, and then and Butler beat VCU. That was what happened. I know UConn beat Kentucky because right. I always remember watching that game. That that weekend, I was at an Ultimate Frisbee alumni tournament in uh, Fredericksburg, Virginia. Ooh, side of so. a Civil War battle. By the way, yes, that was yeah. not a, not a good one for for we we up here who don't like slavery. Uh, yeah. By the way, that was it was Kentucky over North Carolina in that regional final. Uh, they beat Ohio State in the regional semi. The other team of that region, I believe, was Marquette back in 2011. That was in Newark. And then they lost to Connecticut in the semifinal of the national semifinal. So, yeah, Big 12, we'll see what happens. Kansas should be the number one overall seed. And, yeah, that'll be uh, exciting. And then other number one seeds are really kind of up for grabs. I guess Baylor's not a lock anymore. And then we have Dayton, which is still not lost in regulation all season. And Gonzaga. And Gonzaga. San Diego State's out of the mix, probably. Yeah, I think it's interesting because. I mean, I really still think Baylor and Gonzaga and Dayton are the three, um, but Dayton hasn't played the conference tournament yet, and Gonzaga, their tournament's going on, but they haven't started playing yet. They play, I think, in the semis tonight against uh, USF, maybe? Let me confirm that. USF beat uh, Pacific last night in a, uh, it was a really late game, actually. Um, let's see what, what's going on here. Uh, Gonzaga 2020. Gonzaga plays San Francisco. Yep, they play tomorrow in the semis, and the other semi is BYU versus St. Mary's, which is pretty tough. That's pretty. Those are four pretty good teams. San Francisco is actually 79th this year in Ken Palm, which people may not realize. They're 22 and 11, a certain NIT team, um, and they've they've already beaten BYU this year uh, at home, and they. They played Gonzaga tough both times. They combined across the they they w- lost by four at home against Gonzaga the first game, and in the second game they were up uh, 30 to 22 before Gonzaga went a 24 to two run and pulled away. So yeah, definitely could beat them. Yeah. Um. So to wrap up to put a bow on that number one seed point, like the question is who else could it be? And I think this will bring us probably pretty nicely into the Big East conversation that we were always kind of heading towards. Uh, as you mentioned, San Diego State lost to Utah State in the final of the Mountain West Conference Championship yesterday. Florida State in the ACC won the ACC regular season title yesterday. Won it outright. Duke, yes, outright. They beat Boston College to win it outright. Um, but Florida State, while they're good, clearly they don't have the, – the ACC has not really helped with the schedule this year in terms of getting quality wins because the league is not very good. So this year – their um their best wins they won at Florida they beat Purdue um in overtime on neutral court they won at Louisville they won at NC State they beat Louisville at home and they won at Notre Dame those are their best wins and then they have losses to Pittsburgh Indiana Virginia Duke and Clemson um it's fine it's like a fine resume it's like a definitely a two seed resume I don't see it as a one seed resume then you have Duke also currently in the bracket matrix two line who has recovered from uh, a mediocre stretch where they lost a couple games and Coach K accused uh, people of saying they shouldn't talk to his players, they should come after him, but you know, but he, but if they come after him, they should come look at the banners that he has up in Cameron Indoor, talking some social media trash. Anyway, they lost three or four at one point, including, um, we have to talk about Virginia in a second, because I know I know our friend Todd's probably listening. The, one, the last loss of those three was to uh, Virginia by two in a game where Duke scored 50 points. They've since played NC State in North Carolina at home, won comfortably both games to finish 15-5 and five in the ACC. Um, and they're, overall, they're 
five and six. They that's looks like a two seed resume to me. So that leaves you with a couple of Big East teams, maybe even three Big East teams, um, and maybe some Big Ten teams. Let's start with the Big Ten because we're going to spend a little bit less time there. Michigan State and Maryland. Uh, Maryland was just playing. Um, they were beating Michigan, so I think they uh, they did win. They finished 14 and six in conference. Wisconsin finished 14 and six in that conference. If Michigan State can beat Ohio State today, they'd finish 14 and six. But Michigan State already has nine losses, so unless they win the Big Ten title, they'll end up with ten losses. That's not. Has there ever been a one seed with ten losses? I can't think there has ever been. Maryland's twenty-four and seven. Um, their resume is okay, but they were kind of stumbling. They've lost three or four before beating Michigan in this game, and then they had beaten Minnesota in a huge comeback. So those are your contenders, and then you get to the Big East. So in the Big East, we had a three-way tie atop the Big East standings at thirteen and five with Villanova, Creighton, and Seton Hall. It ended in a kind of a crazy way with all the teams playing this week. Villanova played Seton Hall on Wednesday. Villanova led most of the way, but Seton Hall came back, nearly won at the buzzer on a three-pointer, which both missed and was a, a half beat too late. So that would have been that would have clinched for Seton Hall its first outright Big East title since 1994, when Terry DeHair was uh, was holding it down um, in in Orange, New Jersey. So that doesn't happen on Wednesday. Then on Saturday, Villanova is playing Georgetown and is down four in the last minute and comes back and wins on an and-one goaltend from Jermaine Samuels, which which also affected me because now Providence is going to play in the day session on Thursday, so I'm to find a way to get out of work. And then Seton Hall plays at Creighton, and though the game is close for about a half, Creighton rains down threes in the second half and wins by 17, which means they have a three-way tie. It also means that we have Villanova lost at home to Providence last Saturday, Creighton got blown out at St. John's last Sunday, and Seton Hall now has lost two in a row. So which of those teams is going to be a number one seed? It, it, you know, so there's, it's a, it's, no one's really playing their way into it except for Dayton, who still has to play in the A-10 tourney, Kansas, who's a lock, and then Gonzaga, who still hasn't really played in its conference tournament. Yeah. So I, I just don't think there's many contenders. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of things. First of all, let's say Florida State wins the ACC tournament. So I know their mm-hmm. resume is not great, but can you imagine any other team, like a name brand team out of the ACC, winning the ACC outright and winning the tournament and not being a one seed, regardless of the schedule? I mean, that's that would be crazy. So I think that would just automatically put them into contention, even if they weren't necessarily deserving. I think that would be um, something that would mm-hmm. catch the eye of people. Uh, Villanova has the best resume, I think, right now of the Big East teams. Uh, so they would be the the ones to jump into the onto the one line, I think. I think Dayton and Gonzaga basically control their own destiny, but uh, I don't know how likely it is that... Um, I just, like, let's say everybody... Let's say Dayton wins their conference tournament, Gonzaga wins their conference tournament, and Florida State wins their conference tournament, and then who's who do you say? That leaves Baylor. Yeah. yeah. And Baylor loses to Kansas, and then Villanova, uh, whatever the top Big East team as far as the seed line goes, which right now looks like it's Villanova, Windsor Conference Tournament. Mm-hmm. It's going to be Kansas, probably, Gonzaga, Dayton, and there may be one up for grabs. So It'd be Baylor versus they, Florida State, yeah. probably, at that yeah. point. I Yeah, I think, if Villanova could be in that in that realm. According to Bart Torvik's uh, T-Rank Etology, which is just kind of a systemized systematized way of ranking teams based on how the committee has done it in the past, but it's automated, so it just updates all the time. Unlike the bracket matrix, it's bracket matrix is like a lagging indicator. This is kind of in real time. 
it has San Diego State still number four overall, so the top, the last number one seed. Then Dayton, then Michigan State actually, then Villanova, Duke, Florida State, Creighton, Oregon, who we didn't mention, Seton Hall, and then Maryland. That's your top thirteen. Um, I, I mean, I'm not sure how much it matters. Um, I guess it matters in terms of regionality. People are saying that San Diego would rather be a two out west and play Gonzaga than be a one in the east and get I don't know Villanova or Duke or Florida State. But um, I don't know. You're going to play great teams if you want to win a national title, whether you're San Diego State or Dayton or Kansas or Gonzaga. Um, but I do think it makes a big difference. Like Kansas, in multiple years, has been considered the top overall seed and still gotten a very challenging two seed. I think there is a big difference on the two line between, uh, you know, in some years, especially, you know, if, if there could be differentiation on the two line versus Villanova and say, like, uh, Creighton or Seton Hall, like, or Duke even, like, and they don't really necessarily favor the, um, the number one overall sheet should be protected from the top two seed. Like that just should happen. But the NCAA has shown no interest mm-hmm. in doing that recently. Um, so that'll be something else to keep an eye on. That's usually my n- number one complaint about the, uh, the tournament is not like who got in, who didn't get in. Cause they've been much better about that, but just the way they seed it and the way they protect certain seeds. It's not fair to Villanova. And it's not fair to like in the, there's, I think there was in this 2016 tournament, Kansas, I believe was the number one overall seed and Villanova was the top two seed. And they played in the regional final, mm-hmm. which was not fair to either team. Now, of course, Villanova didn't care. They won the national title, but just, you know, it's better for the tournament if they play it, if they space those teams out. Yeah. Villanova that year, I think most people thought they were going to be the fourth one seed. Um, I'm trying let's see who were the one seeds that year. They were, uh, why can't I find, um, oh, here we go. So it was North Carolina, Kansas, Virginia, and Oregon. That was it. It was Oregon. The, people thought they would Villanova would get the uh, last number one seed instead of Oregon. Instead of they they keep Villanova in um, further east. They don't even put him in Oregon's spot. They put I think Duke got that number two seed, and Duke was considered I think not one of the stronger. Duke was a four seed. Who was the two seed in Oregon's? I think that might have been Xavier. That was the year Xavier lost early. Uh, anyway, the um, th- this committee in general has really spent a lot less time on bracketing principles and a lot more time, as you said, on putting teams in the tournament. Like There are a lot of things that make the tournament really fun, and I think some of the bracketing principles help to make it fun, and that includes not having teams in that you would play in the first few rounds from your conference, not having teams you play in the first few rounds that you played recently in the NCAA tournament and also in the regular season in non-conference. And they've shown less and less interest in kind of separating teams that way. And at the same time, they haven't shown more interest in making sure that the top four lines are, are properly balanced. Instead, they've shown a preference for one, focusing on getting the right teams in the tournament, which is important in its yes. own right. And two, um, regional, getting teams to have less travel, which is, I guess, good for attendance because then you get more fans. I, I assume that's why they do it. They probably don't do it because they want teams to have shorter trips, but I think it's, pro- it's mostly because they want more fans in the stands. And so even if Yale, for instance, is like, the worst number 13 seed they and you know the four seed is like let's say seton hall they might put yale um in seton to play in seton hall um if it's in albany because it's close and yale fans will go and seton hall fans will go even though the most fair matchup would to be to have like yale as like the theoretic top 13 seed playing one of the worst four seeds um in this kind of theoretical thing we've we've kind of drawn up here right but. i think it's more important for the later rounds with the higher seeds because teams are, those yeah. those teams are going to travel anyway and then you just want to have the fairest matchups and of course 
yeah, I just don't. Yeah, it's a very difficult job, but it's uh, there's always every year basically. It's kind of like it's almost like doing a crossword puzzle, where obviously building a crossword puzzle is extremely difficult. And then you get there, and you mm-hmm. like you can have a crossword puzzle that works, but then you're like, why is this here crossing with this? And then why don't you just change this to this word, and it's so much better. And so like sometimes like you know crit- uh, this is a very niche argument, but crossword constructors will criticize each other for just saying like why don't you just slide this one letter here it's so much better and like it's so easy and the same thing with the bracket like there's an easy solution sometimes to this just flip these two teams problem solved like why would you not do that and there's no good reason but they just don't do it so yeah it's a kind mm-hmm. of the same situation yeah and yeah and it's frustrating you know I, I think providence is tired of getting matched up with usc and unc well, that, um, that problem will not happen and- this year <laughs> Well, it won't be UNC. Yeah, yeah. I still think there's a chance to get end up with like a seven seed and play um, play USC somehow, which brings us to Providence. So let's talk about the Friars, who, for the since we when we last spoke, they had just beaten Seton Hall, Georgetown, and Marquette consecutively, and kind of gotten in the conversation for the NCAA tournament. Since then, they've won at Villanova. They beat Xavier at home, and then they blew out DePaul in the game where they had two walk-ons in the floor with like four minutes to go. Uh, one by 38 on senior day. Five seniors um, graduated or played their last home game at the Dunkin' Donuts Center. And um, and now they're considered pretty much a lock, which uh, is remarkable. It's the first time that Providence has ever won 12 Big East games in the regular season, which um, they had had good records before, but it was when the season was only 16 games. If you go to the – Providence went 11-5 and five in 2004 – which is when they got, I think, their highest ever seed in the tournament, the five seed. They lost as a five to Pacific that year. They almost played Kansas that year, but they didn't. Um, and instead, Kansas played Pacific and um, and beat Pacific on their way to losing to Georgia Tech in the Elite Eight. Um, and the Friars finished fourth in the conference at uh, 12 and six, one game back of the three uh, co-champions that we mentioned. They'll be the four seed playing Butler, the five seed, which had it well this is a, an incredible game uh so the game really it mattered for xavier so xavier is hosting um butler in the last big east regular season game of the, of the season on saturday night and uh if xavier wins they get the sixth seed and they play seton hall if xavier loses they have to play this be the seventh seed which they play DePaul on wednesday night and then they would get um villanova do i have that right because they're all they're all tied let's see make sure i have that right Oh uh, yeah, exactly. That had it right. So Najee Marshall scores with a few seconds left, and then Kamar Baldwin comes down and hits a three-pointer to win the game uh, with well, 1.2 seconds left, and then uh, Xavier didn't get a shot off. So Butler, which had struggled a bit in the middle of the season after starting so strong, they had lost three three straight at one point in February, and they actually had lost eight of 12, um, which is kind of like a weird stretch, but. Uh, they basically went four and eight in a 12-game stretch. They've now won three straight, are looking more dangerous, and the Big East tournament itself is setting up to be maybe the most interesting tournament. I mean, I'm clearly biased when it comes to this, but the Big East and Big 12 are about as good as each other this year. The Big 10 is better, but it's also bigger, and and the conference tournament is kind of like ungainly. I, I agree. Think. But the yeah, the Big East tournament uh, this year will have. In the, in the top half, we'll have Creighton against the winner of Georgetown-St. John's. And St. John's is playing actually quite well recently, and they'll be playing at home in Madison Square Garden. St. John's has beaten uh, Creighton by 20 and Marquette in the last week with a, a loss at Butler sandwiched in between. 
Providence plays Butler, and then the top half of the bracket is, as I mentioned, um, Seton Hall will play Marquette, and before that, Villanova plays the winner of Xavier DePaul, and then the semifinals should be... Um, well, basically, the night session of the quarters features probably four NCAA tournament teams, unless Marquette or Xavier, in theory, could drop out. It's possible, although it still seems unlikely, that, and the Biggies will likely get seven teams. For Providence... Since that now infamous 32-point loss to Florida, which uh, Coach Cooley brought up in the post-game press conference, he said he looked up at the clock with uh, six minutes to go and down by 30 to Florida at Barclays Center on December 17th, and he said to his team, this is on me. And that's what he says he, he said to his team. And um, and since then, according to Bart Torvik, who breaks down like how teams have played adjusted for the quality of competition for any kind of period in the season, since that loss, Providence is the eighth best team in the country, um, which is remarkable. Kansas, Tom's team is number one, which they've been number one or two for pretty much any stretch you want to you want to put together. But um, yeah, Providence is sandwiched between Duke and Houston uh, as the eighth best team in the country. Um, Creighton is the sixth best team in the country, and those two teams could play in the semifinals. Uh, Villanova's 11 and Seton Hall is 15. So a good, very good year for the Big East. The question for the Big East now and for Providence, because Providence is emblematic of this, is will the Big East have more success in the NCAA tournament? And obviously Villanova has had plenty of success. They've won two national titles. But the rest of the league has not been very good. Um, Xavier made an unlikely run to the Elite Eight. Butler's made a couple of Sweet 16s. And other than that, no one's gotten past the first weekend, unless I'm forgetting someone. Seton Hall, Providence, Georgetown, Marquette, have all had good teams, but have not gotten past the first weekend. Will that be different this year? The Big East will have some good seeds, as we mentioned. Seton Hall, Creighton, Villanova, all will be probably two or three, maybe four, if one of them drops out early in the Big East tournament. Providence is looking at, depending how they do, somewhere from probably seven to ten seed. They could get up to a six, maybe, um, if they win the Big East tournament, because they, even though they have those bad losses, they would have as many good wins as anyone in the country. Marquette is falling a bit, but they should be in the kind of that 9-10 range, as should Xavier. Obviously, you wouldn't expect Providence, Marquette, Xavier to um, advance too far with those seeds, but the way the Friars are playing, who knows? And then Butler is looking at a 5 or a 6, maybe a 4, depending on how things go in the Big East tournament. So you look at those seeds, and you think that should be three Sweet 16 teams, uh, basically. When you have base, let's Right now on, on Brack Majors, they have... Uh, a two, two threes, a five, an eight, a nine, and an eleven. With with seven teams and those seeds, you think you got to get three teams in the Sweet 16. And so the question is, will that happen? And we won't know. And you don't want the whole season to be a great season, really, is what it's been, to hinge on a couple of bounces here and the first weekend of the NCAA tournament. But really, that's how the league is viewed. It's kind of viewed closer, I think, by, by some to the West Coast Conference with, like, Gonzaga. Everyone knows Gonzaga is great. The rest of the league is kind of eh. And obviously, it's a little bit unfair. The Big East is clearly better than the West Coast Conference. But there's that perspective that Villanova is the Gonzaga of the Big East, and no one else in the league has done much in March. Yeah, it's not a, uh, it's not really a fair statement to compare those two. And I do think that the Big East has had some unlucky and maybe underperforming teams in the tournament. I think Providence, it's amazing for them, just from an outsider's perspective. They went from, like, what a disappointment given how they looked preseason to, well, maybe they'll make the tournament. Like, this is, they, keep, they have, like, no margin of error. Maybe they'll make the tournament. Now they're going to be a very dangerous team, just being one of the eighth, you know, what you said, eighth best team in the country since their loss to Florida. Uh, Ken Palm does not love their chances at the Big East tournament, but... 
the Big East tournament is so even. There are five teams with a 10% chance or better to win, according to Ken Palm simulation. Providence is not one of them. They're at 7.3%. And no one has a better chance than Creighton at 23.8%. And just given the quality of the teams, I feel like uh, the Big East is the most... And just how it's like a total... Uh, it's totally up for grabs. I think the Big East tournament is the best tournament. The Big Ten simulation isn't out yet because the seeds haven't been set because they're playing right now. Um, but if you look at, like, you know, another tournament that's up for grab is the um, SEC. I'm trying to find Ken Palm's solutions mm-hmm. uh, simulation there. But that's just the quality of teams that aren't as good yet. They have also have five teams that can make the uh, – uh, that can win the – that have a 10% chance of winning it. But, like, who's excited about Mississippi State? And has Florida beaten anyone good this year besides Providence? No. And then Auburn and LSU are both good, but both have had really strength, uh, really easy schedules, especially Auburn. Uh, so I think that the Big East tournament is going to be the most exciting one. Uh, and the, the Big Ten is just just too much. And then you have like some random game that takes out one of the top teams. And then you would always end up with some like weird team playing Saturday and in the semis mm-hmm. and just kind of like, ugh, yeah. So I don't know. It's always, I don't know. The Big Ten in theory should be the best tournament this year, but I just don't think we'll end up being it because they have just kind of so many, uh, just so many like also rants that somehow mess it up. And one thing about Xavier, did you know, Brendan, they had a winning record in conference for 37 straight years before this season? And this snapped that streak? I think I did know that. I didn't remember. Yeah, I wasn't thinking that when I was watching the game. I heard that stat earlier last week that they had had a, uh, I think a 500 better, record yeah. or better every season for since I guess they were in like the Midwest Collegiate Conference in the in the 80s. Basically, my age is pretty much what you're saying. And I, when they lost to Butler, I wasn't thinking, oh, they're eight and ten. I just was thinking, wow, what a what a great game. And now they have to play DePaul on Wednesday. But that's crazy. Yeah. So that was the longest streak in the country, I believe. Uh, so that was snapped. Um, yeah. So I think the biggest tournament's gonna be very exciting and uh, should be a good one. And uh, yeah. And it's played in the world's most famous right. arena. One of your favorite. As you you hate that uh, that expression, but it is played at Madison Square Garden in New York, which it's a little bit weird this year with coronavirus. I think it does still seem like the tickets are fairly expensive, which is bad for me, but good for the league. Um, but there is something about it being always in the same place every year. Like everyone is kind of like, let's we're all going to meet at the Garden. Like both fans and teams, it's like, oh, you play twice, and then you then you you figure it out in March in the garden, which is, is unique to the big East, which doesn't move their tournament around is like the only conference I think that doesn't really move the tournament. Around. Right. I mean, the a 10 bounces back and around. They've tried to play in Brooklyn most years, but not always. Um, the big 12 is always in, well, the big 12 is almost always in Kansas city. I believe now they've kind of settled there, Yeah, yeah. but they've been known to play other places as well. And as far as coronavirus goes, I just think it's, we haven't talked about it that much, but it's just changing every day. And there's not much to say about it because it seems like it could get worse, but no one really seems to know. Uh, if you go on Twitter, it's a very dangerous place. You can go down a lot of rabbit holes. Uh, I recommend not doing that. But right now, it seems like the city is just saying, uh, like, um, live your life and don't uh, wash your hands wash your and hands. don't touch your face. So that could change. Um, we've seen a lot of other countries uh, try to institute spacing restrictions or social distancing is the term uh, overseas. Mm-hmm. So I guess it could affect the United States. I know Dan Gavitt said today on CBS that the tournament is going ahead and planning to right now as it stands to play at all 14 sites including atlanta um in the final four so we will see how that evolves if it evolves but um certainly it's not anything is guaranteed as far as the uh the games being played and the uh and the fans in the stands also yeah, I mean, I know that Johns Hopkins in in I'm not sure if this was a conference tournament or NCAA tournament game. They played with no fans, which on the one hand, it's like Division three. On the other hand, Johns Hopkins is known for its like 
medical acumen. Right, they're the ones who are so, tracking a lot of the, yeah. like the info, like a lot of the news stories are signing has reported or tracked by Johns Hopkins. So, yeah. Yeah, and it, it's interesting because, you know, I go to school now with a lot of doctors and medical professionals, and most of the doctors I talk to, and my sister-in-law's a doctor, and, you know, she knows a lot of doctors. Doctors seem actually not, they, they think that basically wash your hands, disinfect, treat it like the flu, but don't go crazy. But then, then you hear other people, maybe they're more like sociologists or like maybe, I'm not sure, epidemiologists, but like there's a, there's definitely this, the perspective of, hey, this is going to get worse before it gets better, which I definitely agree with. And so the, the best way to make sure it doesn't get so bad until we have a vaccine, which might be at any time, Ryan Fazekas three-pointer for sure this time for Valparaiso. They're up by three in the second half, um, is to just kind of not self-quarantine because people are, are really questioning the value of quarantines um, other than the articles I read, but just extreme caution. Don't travel. Don't go to church services or temple services, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, last night at the Penn game, I was the, some of the fans were talking, the Penn fans, about how they were told that the players won't be like like slapping five. They weren't, they're told not to do that or, you know, maybe a fist bump, but that's it. Of course, they're all touching the same basketball. They're all like grinding and, and, and like pushing each other during the game. And then when the game started, no one acted any differently. They were like hugging. It's a senior day. They're like, there's hand grasping constantly. So I think certainly it would be a really bad look for the NCAA if we see like all of the travel around March Madness leads to it kind of permeating, especially as you know, college sports are big in a lot of cities and towns and areas are, aren't very affected by coronavirus because they're not as cos- cosmopolitan, maybe not the right word, but they're not as like frequently traveled by people who have been to Europe and to Asia. And but the NCAA tournament would then bring a lot of those folks together, and so would conference tournaments. You know, people from Omaha and people from Cincinnati and people from Milwaukee, you know, are coming to New York. And so, I don't want to, I don't want either discount or be alarmist. I think it's somewhere in the middle. I think we're going to have a lot of people who get infected by coronavirus. I'm sure that the NCAA tournament is not going to help that. And at the same time, I do think that the lethality and the danger of coronavirus is maybe. Uh, not as high as people say, unless you are old. And of course, the thing is, you may not be old, but you might be around someone who's old. And so you might be okay with the coronavirus, but you go hang out with mom or grandma, and and then that person is not able to cope as much. So it's it's a very tenuous position we're in right now. And I'm I'm, I'm trying not to be insensitive to it. At the same time, I what what can I do? I, can, I guess I could stay home and not go to the Biggies tournament. I could tell my dad not to come down. I mentioned he's coming down next week. But I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. And just the other thing is, like, it's impossible to deny that there's so much money involved in this. And I don't know mm-hmm. what the insurance policies are for these kinds of uh, events. Like, how does it work? Like, the NCAA collects almost a billion dollars a year in television money from the NCAA tournament. If they can't have the games or the game, like, what, how, do the, how does that work? No one knows. And obviously, that's going to be a motive, wrong or incorrectly or not, that's going to be a motivating factor. For this and also the pr hit of it like spokane i believe is a first and second round site this year and the mo- most deaths have been in washington like how are they gonna how the, how will they juxtapose playing games there with like you know f- dozens of people or a dozen people have been dead in a senior center in the seattle area so it's a, it'll be a very tricky and interesting situation um yeah but the, and the other the other point about this is that death is obviously the the worst thing that can happen due to coronavirus 
But we also know that even if it's harder to track, the economic fallout, the fallout from a from an economic downturn does actually lead to mortality rates increasing. So there's there's also that. Like if you, you can see that there is uh, like for instance a, a major downturn in Brazil a few years ago led to an eight percent increase in mortality rates, um, and so. We don't obviously money is not as important as life, but a lot of times money can drive right. how people live and can lead to bad health outcomes. Right. Everything well. has a cost, basically. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's always a very it's a difficult trade off, and there are a lot of factors that go into it. But yeah, I mean, I I just say if I I would say I would not be if someone asked me, are you like 100% confident they're going to play the NCAA tournament as normal this year? I would say definitely not. So is it possible? Mm-hmm. Sure, but I would say it's going to be a very interesting situation. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to have a lot of testing in, in the next few days as, as these tests proliferate, and the tests are going to show a much higher infection rate. They'll also, in, in turn, show a much lower lethality rate, but when you have a high infection rate, that means that it could spread to people who are susceptible more easily uh, because more people have it, and that's just, you know, that's just, I'm, I'm not sure if that's science or math or health or All of it. whatever that is, that's the, yeah. Um, well, we're almost, we're at an hour. Let's just hit on some of these topics that, uh, that we have here that we want, I want to talk about a little bit and you want to talk about a little bit quick things. One, um, I think maybe in our last podcast before we took our, our in-season hiatus, (laughs) well-timed as always, (laughs) um, yeah, we had talked about, uh, DePaul and how, I think we, at that time were like, do you think DePaul might tournament? We both said yes. The NCAA tournament, not the Big East tournament. <laughs> Just to clarify, and, point of order. Yeah. And at the time, they'd already beaten Iowa. They'd already beaten um, Texas Tech. They'd beaten another good team. I, I'm having trouble with my Ken Palm loading right now. I'm not able to pull up their schedule. Yeah. But um, then they go 3-13, and 3-15, and 15, I believe, in the Big East Conference. They knocked off a, a kind of a stumbling Marquette early this week, but then they lost by 38 to Providence. In Providence Senior Day, as mentioned before, Dave Leto seemed to have a team that was good enough with Paul Reed and with uh, Romeo Weems and with um, Charlie Moore to make the NCAA tournament or at least be quite competitive in the Big East and instead took a step back. They had their worst efficiency margin in conference since 2016. And so nothing really more to say there. It's just... The, even in, even when DePaul looks, there's a lot of evidence, like a month and a half of basketball's worth of evidence that DePaul was good. It turns out they're actually bad. That's, yeah, is, death taxes and DePaul being bad. Uh, Ken Palm is down, by the way, which is going to be a really bad timing. Uh, no, but uh, yeah, yeah they, so now they who they play Xavier in the uh, Big East tournament, is that right, on Wednesday? Yeah, in the 7-10 yeah. game, and then they would play, well, they're not going to win that game, but if they were to win, then they would play uh, okay, uh, so. Hall. In the, yeah. in the two seven game. No, they would play. Sorry, Villanova. The, yeah, if you're looking for a team that almost had as bad a 2020 as Columbia, it's DePaul. Um, yeah. So no, it's just kind of crazy how things always normal out. Um, I wanted to touch on one thing. Speaking of, we talked a lot about the brackets, and Archie Miller, mm-hmm. after another disappointing Indiana loss, kind of went after. Didn't, didn't kind of go after. He went after Joe Lunardi. Um, mm-hmm. He's speaking of St. Joe's, former St. Joe's Sports Information yes, Director, I believe. He said, and there were someone asked him a question about the tournament. I, forget, I don't know what the question was, and, but uh, Mr. Miller said, "But when you start to go through the bracketology and you listen to the Sesame Street cartoon guys on TV who need clicks, the bottom line is strength of record. Who did you play? Who did you beat? If you look at our wins, there's very few teams in the country. Blah blah blah. And he talks about who he beat: Florida State, Michigan State." Um, he could pluralize those, but I think there's only one of each. Um, and so he's like, if you were beating six, seven teams in the field, you should be in the field. Then he said, Lunardi, 
made a reference. They made a reference to Lunardi and the garbage can, referring to Oscar the Grouch. Uh, so, a couple points of order here. Archie Miller, um, I would say, has been somewhere between like disappointing and uh, somewhere between underwhelming and disappointing at Indiana in his tenure there. Uh, Somewhere in the sh- in the sh- shock yeah, I mean, smart tranche not, of like big yeah, name it, hires. Like, it's not like this. Like you know, Indiana didn't make the tournament last year. They haven't made the tournament the last two years. Uh, they're gonna make it this year probably, but they haven't like knocked people over. So like maybe just calm down with ripping the bracketologists. Uh, two Sesame Street. Not let's not lump it in with the cartoons. Like Sesame Street is a great program because it's watchable for parents. It's very clever. It brings in a lot of like high level celebrities, and it's been doing great work. For whatever 35 years so let's not besmirch sesame street i mean that's complimentary to joe lunardi uh and bracketology to, to besmirch sesame street and third of all i guess the question is you know like the ncaa obviously knows about the bracket matrix obviously knows about these bracket projections so i guess the question is like how you know what do we make of the influence of, of the bracketologists on the ncaa committee is it good that this kind of like de facto um public committee is having some influence over the over the uh, projections over the actual bracket i should say uh, is it not good um and also archie miller just stop stop complaining just don't yeah you win a game or two and then you know people will bother you about what seed you are or whether you're gonna be in the tournament it's been a tough time for the miller yeah. brothers um sean miller uh, arizona they lost to washington and they've lost i think three or four or four or five uh, they also made the tournament, but they've been disappointing. Just um, they've had some injuries as well. So I would say a couple of things. I think it's it's self-reinforcing. the The point of the bracket matrix is to gather all these bracketologists whose job it is, or mostly hobby it is, to try to guess what the NCAA tournament will do with the bracket based on the past. Some of them are doing statistical modeling. Someone are some are doing just like kind of more eyeball tests and that sort of thing. But the in aggregate, the bracket matrix is quite accurate. And what we've also seen is that it's getting more accurate, which implies, I think, not that the bracketologists are getting better, although they might be getting a little bit better, but that the committee itself is becoming either better slash more consistent or is keeping an eye on the bracket matrix as like a check against some kind of outlandish thing that they would do. I remember, I think it was... Virginia was a four one year when I think some I think the bracket matrix had him as like a nine, which is something you'd right. never see anymore. You never see anything like that far off. And so I think that it's a good thing. You know, the the other thing is they could totally change the way that they bracket and see. They can make it more automated. They could use something like strength of record or wins above bubble to to put teams in the field. Um but they want the committee and, and that's fine, but if you want a committee, committees have tendencies, committees have um, ideas and brains, and you, you can predict them, and that's what basically the bracket matrix attempts to do. And it's, I think, it's a service for college basketball fans. It helps to grow the interest in college basketball, and it's a service for um, the committee to just kind of see what the group think is based on where they what they've done in the past. And you know, obviously, in theory, you could have like a bunch of uh, bracketologists. There's not that many of them. There's like 90 or 100. If you had some kind of conspiracy and had like 20 of them decide to raise the seed profile of a certain team by a few lines in unison. I mean, I think it would be quite noticeable, but in theory, it could be a way to um, influence the bracket. But I I don't think that that's really happening Um, because the goal of the bracketologist is to to be accurate. I don't think bracketologists can be confident that they're influencing the the committee that much that they could like actually 
create a conspiracy to move a team into a field or, or um, up a that would be some things. next level stuff as the uh, kids say these days mm-hmm. a couple more big 10 things um, one is Rutgers had only had one win away yeah. from home the entire season and and no team has ever made the NCAA tournament in at large with fewer than th- with fewer than three wins away from home which is you know it includes neutral as well Rutgers got their second one yesterday against Purdue. I think it was an overtime. It, it was. was by three, and and then in theory, if they win their first uh, Big Ten tournament game, um, they would have that three. And I think even if they lose that game, winning at Purdue probably gets them in. I, I do I do think that loss probably is the death knell to Purdue without a couple of wins in the Big Ten tournament because they're just their record is they have like 14 losses, 15 losses now. Um, one more Big Ten thing: Matt Norlander of CBS uh, had a column in his court report about the Big Ten's 20-game league schedule and how the first two years of the Big Ten's 20-game league schedule has been the two years when they... Um, oh, and, and uh, Ken Palm's yeah. back, which is good because I need Ken Palm for this part of it. So the, the, the Big Ten's had a record last year with nine teams making the NCAA tournament, and this year it looks like that they're going to get 10 teams in the NCAA tournament, maybe even 11 if... Um, if Purdue makes it, or if I guess Minnesota could make it in theory. Oh, and Kemp Palms looks like it's kind of down again. Um, but the Big Ten's also been great the last two years. It had been the fourth, fifth-ish best league for several years and was only getting, you know, four, five, six, seven teams, and now it's a top-two league in Ken Palm. It's the number one league by far in Ken Palm this year. But Matt Lorenlander's column, and backed up by Matt Painter, who I guess was one big proponent of 20-game league schedule, believes that this that the schedule itself is helping the team get more teams into the NCAA tournament. And I just think that that is completely wrong. Um, like, look at Purdue, for instance. Purdue is 16 and 15. If they had had two fewer conference games and two more non-conference games and won those non-conference games, they would be 18 and 13. And I think that they would be in much better shape for the NCAA tournament. They're 23 in Ken Palm and probably not going to be the tournament. I don't know if your schedule is helping you if a top 25 Ken Palm team is not making the NCAA tournament because they have 11 conference yeah. losses. Um, it's a, it's very much to me an, an a post hoc ergo propter hoc kind yeah. of thing. It's like one thing happens after another. Like, for instance, um, murders go up in the summer. Ice cream sales go up in the summer. Therefore, either ice cream eating causes murder or people who commit murders are then want ice cream like that the, there's a is a correlation maybe but not a causation and i think that the 20 if the big 10 if you put 20 game schedule five years ago in the big 10 would they have gotten more teams i do not think so the acc this year has been bad and they've actually i think been hurt by their 20 game conference schedule because basically having more conference games reinforces how what your conference already has done out of conference. Also gives you a lower a smaller sample to make uh, your statement out of conference. But basically whatever you do out of conference is then reinforced more because you have more conference games. So if you're good out of conference, it's going to maybe help you a little bit, but basically it'll just take what you are and make it from more um more that way and if you're bad out of conference like the acc is it's actually going to hurt you and at the same time it's not like there's a bunch of acc teams that are not in the top 50 that are that are not getting they're in the top 50 that aren't getting in you have duke's five in ken palm louisville's nine florida state's 15 virginia's 44 there are no other top 50 teams in the acc in ken palm and there are no other ac teams that are probably getting the tournament the big 10 has their entire league in the top 40 except for northwestern and nebraska so they basically, they're going to get probably 10 teams, which means they're going to leave two top 40 teams out of the tournament, 
in part because those teams, Minnesota with 16 losses, 8 and 12 in conference, Purdue with 15 losses, 9 and 11 in conference, have their records are too ugly to get them in. So I think almost the opposite, that the 20-game league schedule may actually make it harder for some of these teams to get in because their records are so A couple bad. things on that. One, I tend to agree with you. It's going to be more than a couple. Two, there's an interview with your boy Aaron Sorkin in the New York Times Magazine section this week that you should check out. Does not talk about, uh, what is it, post hoc ergo hoc? Post hoc ergo popter hoc. That was in, this na- the name of the second episode of the West Wing was post hoc. Your uh, your example is a little darker than the traditional but less complicated metaphor of just because the sun, the rooster crows and then the sun comes up doesn't mean that rooster crowing makes the sun come up. So yours is a little bit more in depth because you had two variables to play. But anyway, because um, you have the temperature, murder rate, and the ice cream sales. Um, so. Uh, but yes, I don't see why it would. It's been. It's, I don't think Purdue is happy. Ironic. It's ironic that uh, Painter is talking about it. Um, I don't think Purdue is happy that um, they have those two extra losses from playing in the tough Big Ten. But good job to Rutgers. Credit to Rutgers. It's a great story in college basketball uh, that the NCAA tournament is um, uh, is seemingly in their, within their grasp. I saw one tweet say Rutgers make the NCAA tournament and then have to play before empty arena because of coronavirus, and that would just be the typical of Rutgers basketball. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. Um, but I do want to talk before we go, since we mentioned the ACC, about Virginia. Um, who have totally turned it around. I know our listener Todd is out there. If he's made it this far, he's probably wondering why we haven't spoken about Virginia earlier. Virginia is one of the most, I think will be one of the most interesting teams in the NCAA tournament in the history of the NCAA tournament. They are 234th in offense and first in defense. And they came off a, a nice win against Louisville at home yesterday. I watched the second half of that game. They held them off and won uh, 57-54. They have not lost since playing Louisville back on February 8th. So that is now a win streak of eight straight games. Uh, they have wins over Florida State this year. Uh, they split that series. I think they're going to be very dangerous. They ended up finishing, what, I think second in the ACC, in the AC- and they're going to be the two seed in the ACC tournament. So um, in that three-way tie. So credit to them. Uh, I don't think they're going to win the national title again, obviously, but I think they're going to be very dangerous. And just with their defense and their tempo, can be a real pain in the neck for anybody. Uh, and it's a real credit to them because they were looked they looked DOA basically halfway through the season, and now they are going to be a dangerous team in the NCAA tournament. So, and it could be against Providence, Brendan, but I don't think it's looking to line up that way. I think both teams will be too good to end up playing like the second round of the tournament. Yeah, I think Virginia is probably looking at a higher seed, maybe a six or something like that, um, six or seven. Uh, I'm looking trying to find like the worst team to get in the tournament. I mean, the worst offense to get like a decent seed in a tournament. I'm I'm gone back a few years. Virginia's 234th. I, Wright State a couple years ago was a 14 seed, but I'm I'm looking for see if there's been a team that's been that bad at defense offense. that's gotten like a 12 seed or higher at offense. I, I keep doing that. Uh, I keep like, obviously Virginia's really really good at defense. They're not good at offense, and they've always been good at defense. They've been better at offense generally than they have been this year. But I, I said it last podcast, I said it this podcast, Virginia, Virginia is really good at defense. Really good at defense. Um, anyway, I cannot I cannot find a team. I don't think there it may not be a it's team. It's really hard to be 234th in the country in anything and make the NCAA tournament. Um, just and Tony Bennett, yeah. just so you're like, oh, this is a Tony Bennett team, typical, good at defense, okay at offense. He hasn't been outside the top 50 since 2013 at Virginia, and he's never been outside the top 160 in his entire career, including his Washington State days. Uh, he's just an offense... In offense, in offense, yes. And right. his adjusted offense in Washington State, his second year there, was 23rd in the country. So Tony Bennett is an excellent offensive coach. So it's a it's almost 
it's it's a very surprising result that they're 234. The fact that they are still, you know, a lock for the tournament with that is a credit to their defense, but it's a little surprising they're 234. I know they played uh, much better recently. Uh, I wish I had checked the Bartorvik um, thing to see what their offense is like of late, but I don't think it's been that good. But let's take a look at his game log to see what they've well, been as you're looking, like let's look at what Virginia has actually done this year, like recently, like the scores of their games. <laughs> um, so they are on an eight-game winning streak, and they've won those eight games by a combined, I think, 30 points. And prior to the Louisville game, which they won yesterday by three at home, they had won seven games, I think, by 27 points. And um, Ken Palm, uh, Ken Pomeroy tweeted that that was the sm- smallest aggregate. You know, point differential in a seven-game winning streak in his time of covering basketball, like based since 2002 or 2001. And the, I'm sure a three-point win making it an eight-game win streak is oh, also yeah. unprecedented. They won, so you, yeah. they won by one. One, yeah, two, 13 against Boston College, so basically doesn't count. Three, three, two, two, three. <laughs> that is insane. And mm-hmm. if just if you're wondering, they're obviously since their defense is so good, their offense has not been that good. They're, they have had two games in that stretch where their offensive efficiency has been better than one point per possession, and a lot of them have been well under 77.778. Then they had 101 uh, point, sorry 1.01 and 1.3 against Boston College again doesn't count. 0.916, uh, 0.973, 0.826 against Duke won that game. Um, 0.795 and then a respectable 0.936 against. Louisville. This is a very good defensive team. This offense is—it's not like this offense is coming around. It's, it's still very sluggish. So we'll see. I mean, they've—they've they've shown some, uh, you know, excellent uh, shot making and some big time plays uh, from Kihei Clark. Had an excellent game yesterday. He scored 18 points um, and really dominated from the line. But this is not a and, and Mamadi Tikite has been excellent for them in some games. But this is not a deep team. And this is not a team that's going to score a lot of points or be very efficient. So, yeah. Just something to keep an eye on. I think they're a very interesting team. They're 44th overall in Ken Palm. So, yeah. Okay, my last thing before we go is on the Atlantic 10 conference. Um, The Atlantic 10 is probably only going to send two teams max. Obviously, Dayton is going to go as a one or two. And Rhode Island has fallen off towards the end of the season. BC's been disappointing. Davis has been disappointing. And Richmond's, like, right on the bubble um, on the cut line. And Atlantic 10 fans and other mid-major fans are complaining about the lack of mid-majors in the NCAA tournament recently, especially since the net came in. But really, it's been since the conferences expanded and they became, like, super huge conferences. And, like, okay. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's hard. People talk about how big conference teams have all these chances to get these wins, quad one wins. But, you know, the Providence has had a ton of them. They've gotten seven or eight quad one wins, but they also play like 15 or 16 of these games, especially in the, a good Big East. Same thing with the Big 12 and the Big 10. And the A-10, they just don't have the chance to do that. But I think that what this misses is it misses um, – it misses the fact that it's not like there are A-10 teams that are really good that are being left out. I think that, that that's the confusing part to me. There aren't top 50 A-10 teams that are not getting the NCAA tournament in Ken Palm. So it's not like we have – like it, it would be an inefficient model of, of, of teams in the tournament if the way you rewarded teams was on all their quality wins 
and therefore bad teams who just got a, a bunch of win quality, get quality wins, were let in, but good teams who just had fewer opportunities were not let in. And that really is not the case. If Ken Palm is our measure for how good teams actually are, and I think it should be, it has a very good track record there, then mid-major teams are just not as good as they were. Um, the A-10 used to have one. They used to have at times Xavier and Temple and um, Butler for a very brief period of time. But two, the teams in the A-10 used to be better, like even without including those teams. Um, you know, VCU used to be better, and St. Joe's used to be better, and um, Massachusetts used to be better. If you, you don't have to go back that far. If you go back to 2014, they got f- one, two, three, four, five teams in the tournament, including UMass, St. Joe's, George Washington, VCU, St. Louis, and Dayton, including two teams that were in 50 or 55, and no other team was in the top 90, and they got five teams in. In 2015, they got one, two, three teams in, and again, no non-top 50 teams, no, no top 50 teams were left out. Um, and then I, I think 2013 is the year they had a bunch. Basically, if you're top 50 in the A-10, you're getting into the NCAA tournament. And if you're not top 50, you're not, you still get in about half the time if you're 50 to 60 in Ken Palm. And so I guess it does seem unfair the way teams are shown. They're like, well, they only had two quad one wins, and they went two and three in quad one games, whereas Providence went, whatever, seven and five or eight and six or something like that. Um, but I would agree with that if these teams were being omitted and were actually quite good. Now, this year, if you look at the, the Ken Palm rankings – the good teams that might get left out if they lose, you see, well, Utah State is in now, so that's not one of them. Northern Iowa lost, and then are 48th in Ken Palm. They might get left out as a mid-major team. Um, and then St. Mary's is 37. If they lose to BYU, will they get left out? But there are no other mid-major teams. Here are the, here are the non-power six teams, and you can, well, I don't know about the American, but Gonzaga is number two. They're getting in, obviously, a high seed. Dayton, number four. They're getting in a high seed. San Diego State is number six. BYU is number 12. They're going to get like a seven or a six. Then you have um, Houston and the American, if you want to count them. They're in the top 15. And then you have you have to go all the way down to 37 St. Mary's, as I mentioned. 41 Utah State, automatic. Wichita State is 42. Cincinnati is 45. Richmond's 46. Maybe they'll get it, maybe they won't. And then Northern Iowa's 48. And Connecticut is in the American, whether you want to consider them. They're 50. So basically... If you don't count the American, you have like five or six teams in the top 50 period out of those conferences. And I just think those conferences are just not as good as they were. The Mountain West is worse. The Missouri Valley is worse. The A-10 is worse. Um, the West Coast Conference is probably a little bit better. Well, St. Mary's is probably uh, getting but, in. There are eight in the bracket matrix right now. So I think they're probably going to get yeah. it. So even if they lose. It's really Richmond. Richmond. Yeah. Richmond is the one this year. They're 46th in Ken Palm, which is right on the cut line generally. But their only quality wins, let's see, they, they won a neutral court against Wisconsin. They won at Rhode Island by eight. They won at Davidson by six. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're they're right on the bubble so, right anyway. now. The question is, like, does a team like UCLA, um, nor NC State, Purdue? I guess probably not. Like, do, mm-hmm. should we would we have one of those teams in there instead of a Richmond? And that's that's I guess every year. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, but every year, like, those are the the three I mentioned are big conference teams. Every year, there's like, why is UCLA in over Richmond? Like, I can see the point about that, but I I don't think there's like a systematic discrimination against uh, mid-major teams. That I definitely agree with. I think they're not as good. Like the like yeah. several years ago, Wichita State got in, but they got jobbed in the bracket. That's like Kentucky. And so there mm-hmm. may be more, again, more discrimination within the seed lines, but I don't think there's that big a problem with getting the best teams in the tournament right now. I think the NCAA has basically solved that problem. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Well, we'll see if they solve it yeah. next week. Next time we talk, I think we'll be right after this. The tournament comes out on yep. Selection Sunday. Um, we'll see how it goes. Uh, I'm a bit nervous about this week for many <laughs> reasons. Uh, hopefully, the coronavirus is not one of them, but it, it's, I guess it's part of it. But um, I was thinking about this. I was walking this morning. You know, Providence has had a remarkable season. They've won six straight games. Can't say a remarkable season. They've won six, 17 and one in yeah. conference, right? Their top team in, in America, Providence has never won 12 conference games. They became one of five teams ever to win five, to beat five ranked teams in the same calendar month. Like it's been a remarkable season, incredible for both teams. And yet, what Kansas is a little bit different because the Big 12 tournament doesn't matter as much. It's more about getting the Final Fours um, and winning national championships. And for Providence, though, what you do in the Big East tournament and what you do in the NCAA tournament is what you remember. The teams that are memorable at Providence is not the 2004 team that went 11-5 and in conference and then lost in the first round of the Big East tournament to Villanova and the first round of the NCAA tournament to Pacific. What you remember is 94 when they were like a bubble team and won the Big East tournament. 2014 when they were a bubble team and won the Big East tournament. Or 97 when they went to the Elite Eight. And it's weird. You like watch basketball for all these months and then you know, even though it's irrational you know that what happens in the next three weeks is going to determine what, how you remember this team so it's it's a great part and also a terrible spark part of following sports and i'm excited to i would say the 04 team was remembered only because they had a, providence had a long tour, tournament drought and that was the oh they were they were remembered as the last team to make the tournament so but yes in the grand scheme of like great providence oh, yeah, the, teams they're not memorable mm-hmm. but yes from like 04 to whatever it was how long did they go since was it 014 they made it back yeah, to fourteen. So yeah, like during years, that uh, yeah. ten year stretch, they remembered as the last team to make the tournament, but not certainly a remarkable team. Just happened to be the last time they made it. Mm-hmm. The most memorable thing until two thousand four, and we can put this in the uh, in the closing because all-time it's an all time great quote is when Providence went in two thousand four <laughs> to Connecticut and won by ten, and Ryan Gomes from Connecticut destroyed um, UConn. We had the all the all time great quotes from Jim Calhoun about Emeka Okafor and Karam Butler when he was asked about why he didn't recruit Ryan bad. Gomes. Well, well, yeah. They're not bad. <laughs> I think we just got our podcast title too, to, by they... the way. So we're searching for it. Yeah. Now we got it. They're not bad is a good one for Kansas and Providence right now. And we'll we'll put that Calhoun clip in the, in the close because it's, it's worth... Uh, yeah, look it up on you. And, uh, yeah, look it up on YouTube. Well, first time. rate the show of five stars. Then look up the Jim Calhoun clip on YouTube. Yeah. Okay. Thanks to you, uh, Tom, and thanks to everyone who listened. Enjoy your March Madness week. Uh, as long as you don't play Providence or Kansas, we wish you good luck. We wish you, of course, wash safety and health. Um, and yeah, wash your hands. Don't, don't touch your grandma. face. And go Friars. <laughs> don't hug. Don't hug Grandma. No. Uh, anyway, thanks. Until next time. Um, enjoy the enjoy the hoops. Fucked up.